0: Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers The Piano. It's kicking off the fourth season of the podcast, running January through June. I will be covering uh, different three different directors, two films from each, so one January and February, one March and April, and one May and June. Jane Campion, obviously the director for uh, these winter months now, so I'll discuss at the end of this episode... Who, uh, what the next film by her will be. If you have any thoughts on the piano, please send feedback. I'll share them in upcoming episodes. Uh, in the previous episode for this podcast, I covered a double feature, uh, The Devil Rides Out and Brawl in Cell Block 99. On my other feeds, uh, Twin Peaks Cinema, I put up an episode in December on Sunset Boulevard, comparing that film to Twin Peaks, part of my What's in a Name series where I talk about films that uh, Twin Peaks... ...took character names from. So in that case, Gordon Cole gave uh, the David Lynch character in Twin Peaks his name. And for the Lost in Twin Peaks uh, podcast feed, I finally returned to that after a month's break to wrap up Season 1 in December. So for the Season 1 finale, I had the episodes, daily episodes for a week... Uh, Welcome, mystery, Laura, subplots, current events in the weeds and archives, and an illustrated companion guide to all that with screenshots and listings and so forth, as with every other episode. So season one is now done. There will be a pause and I may come back for some season two episodes, but I may just skip ahead in May for Firewalk with Me since the 30th anniversary is coming up then. And then the fifth anniversary of season three after that. And then I would go back and do season two. So that's the plan for now. But uh, if I get far enough ahead, I may do some season two episodes before that. So stay tuned. On YouTube, I posted my Twin Peaks Conversations number five, Firewalk With Me, Your Laura Disappeared author, Scott Ryan. So great conversation with him and cross-posted that publicly on Patreon and also had more than half the conversation exclusive to the $5 a month tier. We discussed Season 3 as well as Firewalk with me. He had some really interesting thoughts on that. For dollar a month patrons, I put out Episode 86, Twin Peaks Cinema, Mysterious Skin, talking about the similarities between particularly Firewalk with me and that uh, really interesting film, And uh, in addition to that, topics included the old and new Dune, I did an archive reading and a new capsule, Twin Peaks reflections on the characters of Pinkle, Mayor Lana, locations of Big Ed's Gas Farm and House in Fargo Field, and the storyline of Who is Donna's Father, which I connected to Eraserhead, plus some more topics in there, and also made available uh, Lost in Twin Peaks number 29 to all patrons, that's covering the Miss Twin Peaks pageant there, And then I also posted an update for the end of 2021, just talking about the new podcast that was going to be coming and some other things. So I was also a guest on the Twin Peaks Unwrapped podcast for their uh, two-parter, A Very Ronnie Rocket Holiday Special, where they talk about a screenplay that David Lynch wrote in the 70s and 80s, uh, very offbeat. And we discussed that and they also have people reenacting it. So that's definitely an episode you'd want to tune in for. And on my site, I launched right into Mad Men season 7 for my viewing, my written viewing diary. So I did episode 1 Time Zones, episode 2 A Day's Work, episode 3 Field Trip and episode 4 The Monolith. That's what I've been up to. With that, I was originally going to wait till the summer to resume Mad Men, but since I was postponing other projects, I figured why not just carry on into the uh, 1969 season of that, the covering 1969, of course, came out in 2014 okay so that's it for what i've been up to since the last episode let's now kick off 2022 with my discussion of the piano recorded a few years back so let's revisit that here the critics say so moving and original it is a triumph one of the most enchanting love stories ever filmed erotic mysterious exquisite Jane Campion is one of the most splendid filmmakers around. In a new world, passion has no limits. The Piano, from acclaimed director Jane Campion. The Piano is one of those films where an object is the centerpiece, it's even the title, and of course that object stands as a surrogate. For the main character in a way, or at least as a supplement of her. In this film, a woman, Ada, from Scotland, has a young daughter and she's mute. And her father uh, marries her off to a man from New Zealand, or who lives in New Zealand at this point. So she goes off with her piano, all of her other possessions as well, and they show her landing on this very stormy beach in New Zealand carried by the locals up on their shoulders to the beach and all of her possessions are sort of strewn about in the waves. And when they walk back through the woods and back to this sort of um, small village where uh, several of the, of, of the uh, Europeans live, uh, along with many Maori, They have to leave her piano behind on the beach. And there's a man named Baines, played by Harvey Keitel, who decides to retrieve her piano. He's sort of intrigued by the main character, Ada. And uh, he makes a bargain with her husband where he'll trade some land and he'll get the piano. And then he asks for piano lessons. And, of course, this is basically subterfuge. He wants an excuse to see Ada. And he makes a deal with her, a bargain, where he says, I'll... Give you back your piano if you basically allow me to, uh, well, basically to molest her in various ways. Uh, well, sh- uh, one, like, basically one key for one kind of gesture, you know, starting with a kiss and then eventually it escalates all the way to sex. And she agrees to this, uh, you know, through sort of motions, non nonverbal communication. And, uh, as this goes along, she eventually starts to feel sorry for him and she he gives her back the piano uh he doesn't want it anymore because he feels that it's hopeless he doesn't want to just basically be harassing and assaulting her, even though that's kind of what he's doing but he uh you know he he wants it to be reciprocal, so he has the piano sent back, and at that point, she returns to the house and He says he doesn't want to see her if she doesn't actually love him, and then they make love. And uh, Her husband, played by Sam Neill, finds out about this and is both intrigued and horrified. Like He's just spying on her the whole time. There's even a shot where she drops a button um, between the boards of the floorboard, and it hits him in the face because he's lying underneath looking, which is almost a surreal moment. And at that point, he takes her back. There's sort of a various tug of war over her he chops off one of her fingers when she he finds out that she's trying to go back to him and then finally she's able to kind of communicate with him almost telepathically and she hasn't spoken since she was a child so she's not there's there's something else going on there it's not said that it's like a physical ailment or anything she just uh, has stopped speaking for 20 years or something like that and so her husband Goes back to Baines and basically says, take her away. I want to wake up and feel that this was all a dream. And so he does. And in the end, she's uh, on her boat. They're going out to sea. And uh, she asks them to drop the piano off, to drop it into the sea after insisting that it be brought along. And she watches as the rope coils around. It grabs her by the leg and pulls her under. And you think she's going to drown, but eventually she pulls away and swims up and there's a narration over the film that we only hear in the beginning and end in which Holly Hunter who of course plays the Ada the star of the film in which she says this is the voice of my mind not my speaking voice and she tells us a few things one thing she tells us is that her will is uh, a frightening thing that she's afraid of where it will lead her and the will is associated with the piano and then she says to her surprise at the end that the will chose life and she was able to swim away. And so we see at the end of the film she lives with Baines in I think Australia, maybe in Melbourne. And uh, he's, she's, she's learning how to speak. And, um, you know, there's sort of a happy ending, I guess, in a sense, after all the turmoil. A fascinating film. First of all, just because of the way it looks and plays and sounds... It's a film that's very alive to the senses. You know, you, you almost feel at times like you can smell something or taste something because uh, the cinematography is so sort of limpid and impressionistic and uh, and vivid at the same time. I remember when this came out, I was a kid and, you know, not kind of ready for this sort of film. And I remember hearing about it. It was It was kind of a sensation at the time, as I recall. Um, this was a film that made a big impression at a time when there were quite a few other films um, making deep impressions this was right around when Schindler's List came out Um, but I would say after that this was probably the film of the year and I remember my mother saw it and she hated it absolutely hated this film Uh, just really did not like a lot of the things about it I think found it kind of gruesome and depressing but also I think really just did not like the relationships that she had in this you know the guy exploiting her and then she goes back to him and then the Sam Neill character tormenting her and dragging through the woods and chopping her finger off and all this stuff Um, I think even more so than the brutality just the way that the film kind of dealt with that a brutality in a in a sense, almost kind of accepting it in a weird way. I'm totally putting words. This is not what she said about it, but and I remember my impression of it at the time was sort of this very much like an art house film, you know. And I think I sort of retained that impression later and thought, okay, is this sort of that film where it's very pretty to look at and it has a kind of somber theme and everything like that, and it, it's sort of the, you know, the art house movie for that type of crowd where uh, it's ostensibly somewhat highbrow but maybe a little bit shallow in a in a weird way and when I finally saw the film I, I didn't really feel that way because there's especially the early passages there's just a real vividness to uh, Jane Campion's style uh, the cutting and the way that the camera will move there's a great shot where after carrying Ada to shore the men all pee and right as they're getting ready to pee the shore just sort of whips up and we see it uh you know this shot uh close-up of it going past uh Ada's feet and you know there's this sort of association there um, which works in several ways it works just visually and kinetically but also in a weird way you know like they're marking their territory almost and she's part of this male world now this male dominated world and that's really throughout the film what's so interesting about the film and I'd be interested I haven't yet but I'd be interested to sort of read some of the conversations happening around it at the time because I can see a lot of uh, criticisms of it and I think my mother kind of felt some of this where, you know, is it doing the sort of classic Beauty and the Beast thing where the man is a monster and he takes advantage of the woman and then she sort of falls in love with him and falls under sway and tames him and that kind of um, repressive model almost in a way. Or is it doing something more interesting? And I think, you know, it's it's interesting in that light to notice, of course, the Merrimack's logo at the beginning and end of this film. I, I don't think Harvey Weinstein had much to do with Uh, I mean, I, I know he had nothing to do with the creative aspect. I don't think he even had much to do with like financing it. I'm not sure, but I think he just got the distribution rights. But that certainly is striking because the scenario in this film is really, when you think about it, extremely similar to what he was doing, where he would have these sort of offers for these women And he would, you know, well, you know, you can do this if I do this and trying to make it like, you know, they were there of their own will, but he had all the power and control in the situation. So um, I can imagine through his eyes, this would be quite an appealing uh, scenario. But I think the film is doing something more interesting and more fleshed out than than just that sort of fantasy. The turning point where um i f- where i feel like it's going into something sort of deep and rich and troubling and compelling is after he after sam Neal has locked her into the house and then she starts for the first time ever she starts approaching him and she won't let him touch her but you know she's sort of taking his clothes off and caressing him in the bed and he's confused he says why can't i touch you and she moves his hand away and won't let him do things and at one point he gets uncomfortable and to me, what's interesting about this is it suggests that this is not so much a scenario of like you know the 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 monster being tamed by the woman and while also exciting her passion. It's more of a story of somebody who is in this situation in various situations, and that's what's compelling. This is a new situation in the film that she's in with her husband, but she's reacting somewhat similarly to how she did with Harvey Keitel, which is resisting with all her power but also interested in their weaknesses and and interested in coming to them you know when they're approaching her often forcefully and brutally she's not she she may feel she's forced to go along with it she may go but she doesn't give herself and when she feels that she has that power and agency those are the moments where she actually feels something for these for these men so i think it's it comes off to me at at that point as less of a situation of trying to sort of romanticize this abusive relationship than to recognize how within that dynamic uh, someone can try and hunt for something that is more reciprocating it makes sense that at the end of the film she throws the piano away and I think this this could be read and it almost kills her to do so I think this could be read in a few ways obviously the piano is associated with her will And there's this idea that, you know, this is her sort of, her independence, her autonomy, her sort of life force apart from this very repressive environment that she's in her entire life. Um, And it's worth pointing out, too, that as we learn when she's speaking to the little girl about the daughter's father, how she met him and what their history was, and we know that they're not married. We know that she could sort of speak to him without words, um, but that he got frightened and moved away from her. So there's this sense that she has this power and she herself is somewhat uncomfortable with this power and the power is identified with the piano. You know, she even removes a key at one point and writes, George, your heart is mine and has the daughter run it off to him. Um, And unfortunately, she brings it to Sam Neill instead and all sorts of horror ensues. So when we lose this piano at the end, the piano in a way has been associated with something positive in her life. And it's kind of surprising in that sense. And I think it lends a certain ambiguity to the ending where we could see it as she's, she's freeing herself from this, this form and and maybe she's reborn, you know, she emerges from the water when she gets, when she, uh, you know, is able to shake off the rope. And there's certainly a sense of baptism in that where she's born anew. Um, but what does that mean that could mean that now because she's with george and he understands her and they have this love that she's free in a way she's free to be herself she doesn't have to take on this contained embodied form of the piano but there's also another sense to it in which she's letting go of this independence she's becoming a wife and maybe a happy wife but she's becoming essentially she's she's allowing herself to become his property and therefore she has to lose this frightening, powerful, beautiful kind of force that she's associated with this 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 inner power that she has, this identity apart from any any man or any sort of social conventions so what's what's fascinating about the film is it's told very much from her point of view, and we're allowed to sort of slip into the point of view of both George and the husband whose name I keep forgetting, but we see it almost from a double perspective. We see their sort of possessive feelings towards her and we understand her existence beyond that possessiveness. And both of them, interestingly, they need to be loved. They can't just... It's not enough that they're able to possess her. They want to possess her life force as well. And, you know, they can't. She She's able to withhold that from them and that's what torments them the most. Is this idea that they're lacking something they all they they very much feel like they are missing something, and they're grasping at her, trying to sort of get it um, vicariously and then sort of viscerally through her and in a way she doesn't want to give it she also can't give it, give that to them that's it's her it's you know she the fact that they're not willing to they they've sort of caught themselves in a trap of their own making because what they want from her she can't give and part of the reason she can't give it is because they have this power over her and this this unwillingness certainly in the husband's part and to a degree with George as well certainly at first this is the case they have the they have this inability to be able to to allow her to make the decisions and to make the to make her own decisions and only when it comes to that point, you know, only when he gives her back the piano, will she give will she give it back to him in a sense. And that's kind of the dynamic that, that Jane Campion is playing with in this film. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to promote this. Uh, as I mentioned, I'll read any feedback you send if you want to leave comments there or on my site or on Twitter or elsewhere. And... I also, of course, have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Lost in the Movies. You can, at the dollar a month tier, get podcast episodes each month with different features. Then for $5 a month, you get access to larger portions of the Twin Peaks conversations, which people really seem to be enjoying. We've gotten a lot of new patrons checking that out. The next episode is going to cover a Jane Campion film from later in the 90s. And I have two guests on to discuss this, Em and Steve from the No Ship Network, they did the great Twin Peaks podcast, Sparkwood in 21, this was a suggestion of Em's uh, in 2018, and they came on to discuss this, also discussed part 8 of Twin Peaks, which will eventually appear on my Lost in Twin Peaks feed, that was all part of one big episode that'll be split for the public. But uh, you can tune in to hear this film, and I guess I'll say the title because it's, not as well-known, I think, as some other Jane Campion film, so you might not just guess it from the clip, but it's Holy Smoke. Her family imagined the worst, so they hired a top American expert to lure her back. It's such a relief that you've arrived because we've all been so worried. Look at this. It's a gift. See? She's coming towards me. This can be over in 12 hours. I imagine you could persuade any woman to do anything. Do you have a website? This is a complete waste of time. You're never going to break me.